0: You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom.
1: CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom.
2: Welcome to CNA Newsroom. Hey, everybody. Welcome to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines each week. It is the first week of Advent. And in this episode, we're going to talk about the star of Bethlehem, you know, the star that appeared in the sky that the Magi followed to Jesus, that whole deal. We're also going to take you to the Basilica of the Nativity in Bethlehem. But first, our first segment, here's the deal. I, I really like the song, "O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And so I had this idea to do a show for Advent about Emmanuel's, and I brought it to our podcast meeting, and people were like, okay, we could try that. And we batted it around for a while, and eventually we decided to interview three priests named Emmanuel to tell their stories in Emmanuel episode. Get it? I thought it was funny. But we reached out to seven priests named Emmanuel, and for good measure, a Catholic cellist named Emmanuel. We thought we'd get at least three Emmanuels to come on the show. Well, listen guys, nobody got back to us except the cellist who called to decline the interview. Then last week, our waiting for Emmanuel was over. A long-awaited Emmanuel called us up.
3: My name is Father Emmanuel Marinelli, and I'm a Trappist monk here at St. Joseph's Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts.
2: Father Emmanuel has been a Trappist for 36 years.
3: When I entered the monastery, there's a custom of taking a religious name, and I decided to take the name Emmanuel for a couple of reasons. One. I entered right at the beginning of Advent, and I I thought it was appropriate, and I somehow related to what the name means, God with us, and I felt that's really what I needed in my life. And to really make that meaning part of myself here in, in the monastery, that would be, in a sense, part of my vocation as a contemplative.
2: Advent is a special time for Father Emmanuel.
3: It does. Have a, a, a lot of meaning to me. I look forward to it every year. Um, it, it, there's something about it that's special because it 's the beginning. It's a sense of beginnings, the beginning of the liturgical year. and uh, you know the beginning of salvation history uh, played out through the liturgy.
2: It turns out the Father Emmanuel who called us has a really cool and interesting story. In fact, Father Emmanuel has two vocation stories. He spent 13 years as a Franciscan friar before he became a Trappist.
3: I actually uh, began my vocation in 1970 when I entered the Franciscans, but I always had a desire for contemplative life, for monastic life. And uh, as time went on in the friars, I made my final vows with them um, and decided I would stay with the friars. But as time went on, I, I felt I wasn't called to the apostolic life, which is really which is their life as, as friars. I felt much more attracted to a uh, contemplative prayerful life with emphasis on the liturgy. Uh, I spent 13 years with the Franciscans and then decided that I really wanted to become a monk.
2: Father Emmanuel said his decision to leave the Franciscans and enter the Trappists was one of the hardest decisions he has ever had
3: to make. When I decided to uh, make the transition, it was very difficult uh, because I spent uh, a number of years with them, and they were like family to me. And to make that transfer, that transition, uh, was, was difficult emotionally. Even when I decided to make the decision, I felt kind of torn because I didn't have a sense of security and that, you know, this is absolutely right. And I remember walking up the hill here at the Abbey and basically praying and asking the Lord, you know, tell me what I should do. Should I stay here? Should I go back to the friars? Uh, I, I just didn't know. And I got this kind of inner voice, which just basically said to me, jump. (laughs) Make the jump, and I'll take care of you. I did, and so he has taken care of me for the last 36 years, uh, and I'm grateful for that. The liturgy has always been a very uh, important part of my religious life. And uh, one of the reasons I wanted to become a monk, uh, because I have a strong desire for the divine office, uh, and and the Mass. So um, the monastic liturgy, liturgy um, kind of fit what I was uh, looking for and uh, and has been my support for, for all these years. The
2: liturgy is the center of life in a Trappist monastery. Monks at St. Joseph's Abbey in Spencer begin their day at 3.30 in the morning with the Office of Vigils. They end their day at 8 with the Office of Compline. Night prayer.
3: Uh, the day is interspersed every few hours with the return to the divine office to basically sanctify the day.
2: They also have a special emphasis on Lectio Divina, praying with scripture, and on manual labor.
3: In our order, we support ourselves by our own industries.
2: St. Joseph's Abbey produces liturgical vestments, and they have a line of like jellies and jams and stuff like that. And if you're not really a jelly person, good news. Five years ago, they opened a brewery.
3: So we now produce Trappist Ale, Trappist Belgian Ale. We're the the only Trappist Monastery in this country that makes uh, an authentic Trappist Ale. It's still not available nationwide, but it's spreading out pretty quickly. Interesting part of the brewery is that 40% of what is being brewed is going to Europe. And we never envisioned that at the beginning. Uh, We only thought, you know, we're gonna sell here in the United States. But uh, it's become popular in a few countries, in Europe, so you can, you can buy it in Spain, you can buy it in France. And recently, uh, we just did a whole uh, large shipment to China. <laughs> so, so so the beer's getting around.
2: Father Emmanuel said the chapel is the center of his community's observance of Advent.
3: In secular society, uh, it's all very commercial. And in a sense, Advent gets lost, because, uh, you know, we go right from Thanksgiving into Christmas. There, There's no sense of really waiting for the Lord to come, you know, anticipation. Uh, and that's basically what we have a sense here. There are several things that we do, which which have always been kind of special to me. The first Vespers of each Sunday of Advent, uh, which is on Saturday evening, we celebrate what we call Lucinaria, and basically, we darken the church and we light the first candle of each week for of the Advent wreath, uh, and then sing special hymns. So that that's always been a kind of a, a special way to mark each week of Advent. We also sing the O Antiphon, something you probably don't hear in a parish. That begins on December 17th, and it's in the octave before Christmas, and it's basically all the prophetic names of the Messiah, O Wisdom, O Adonai, O of Jesse. And of course, the final one on December 23rd is O Emmanuel, (coughs) which I kind of see as my feast day. Uh, And then of course, the 24th, we have Christmas Eve. We have a a real sense of uh, the season of Advent before we go into the season of Christmas, which, which makes it so much more special.
2: Today, Father Emmanuel is music director at the Abbey. He's an organist and he's guest master at the retreat house. He gives spiritual direction and he sometimes leads retreats for priests and also for lay Catholics.
3: I feel that I belong, that I really belong here and that the monastic life has always been within me and it just needed a way to express itself. I felt probably the most fulfilled when I was ordained a priest. Uh, and I've only been a priest for the last five years, even though I've been here for three decades. Um, since then, I feel that my vocation is complete. I have a real sense of uh, completeness now and fulfillment.
2: Well, we didn't get three, but I think we got a great Emmanuel story. After the break, our producer, John McKeown, investigates the star of Bethlehem. Then we go to the historic Basilica of the Nativity in a little town of Bethlehem. Stay with us. You seem to think that the crime of heresy means a person committed a sin. I think a person. No, I don't. How dare you? I do not. I, I think virtually anybody has cruel. the, has that the is psychological a gross capacity. Slander. I don't think To most the law. To the, to, law. <laughs> to the law. To the law. Welcome to CNA Editor's Desk, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation every single week. Somehow Carl Carl was playing a game in which he expressed his opinions and still somehow won. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Carl, everybody. If you enjoy listening to the best, most informed commentary on the week's headlines from a Catholic perspective, subscribe to Editor's Desk right now. We're on every platform that there is, so just search for us and subscribe both of our shows are available wherever you get your podcasts. So, we are in a new liturgical year. Advent, probably some of you know this starts a new year in the church's life. And the church's liturgical calendar actually goes on a 3-year cycle of readings through the Bible. The years though, they're they're not really creatively named. This is year A. But The cool thing about year A is that right now we're reading the Gospel of Matthew. And the second chapter of the Gospel of Matthew talks about magi from the east who come to Jerusalem to pay homage to the newborn Jesus. The magi say that they followed a star to find the Messiah. This star has become known as the Star of Bethlehem. You guys know that story. But the star, you might not know, has captured the interests of scientists for decades. In our next segment, we ask the director of the Vatican Observatory to separate fact from fiction. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him.
0: When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. You've probably heard this passage dozens of times, every single Christmas.
2: And lo, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and
0: they fell down and worshipped him. The Star of Bethlehem has captivated the minds of Christians for centuries. But it wasn't until the 17th century when the German astronomer Johannes Kepler developed his laws of planetary motion that scientists were finally given the tools to start figuring out how to roll back the clock all the way to the first Christmas to find out what the star really would have looked like. You probably can guess where this is going. Such a prominent star, especially one that behaves like this one, would seem to have been something other people would notice and put down in the historical record. So the question remains, is there any cold, hard evidence of the star's existence?
4: Whatever the magi would have seen, let's just assume they're true, let's just assume they're really there, they really happened. It was something that nobody looking at the sky would have noticed but they did. Brother Guy
0: Consolmagno is a PhD astronomer who's done postdoctoral work at Harvard and MIT and has, for the past four years, been the director of the Vatican Observatory. You might not have even known that the Vatican has an observatory. It was established in the 1890s when several countries decided to work together to photograph different parts of the night sky.
4: We serve as a sign of how the church supports science to remind the faithful that science is not your enemy. Science is a route to truth because science number one is the search for truth and the truth Truth will always bring you to God. Truth will not contradict truth as Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul II put it. But in addition, Since the beginning of time, God has revealed himself in the things he's made. And that means that we encounter God in the physical universe. And more than just encountering God, we get to know God, we get to know God's personality. A personality that not only is logical, loves his little jokes, can I say. Those things that when you see how it works, you just have to laugh. Because it's so simple and elegant and yet unexpected. The magi are seeing something in the sky, which is interpreted in terms of astrology now astrology is f- specifically forbidden in the hebrew scriptures it was being used as a reason to worship the stars rather than god and as a way of denying human freedom the people the, the shepherds in the fields where it was dark where they didn't have city lights they knew the sky what was it that the magi saw that everybody else didn't see. You can go to your computer, your home computer, download a program called Stellarium, or use one of the wonderful commercial programs that tells you where the stars are going to be, and roll back to April of 6 BC, and you will find all of the planets rising with the sun. And... Our understanding of what the ancients thought of astrology, they thought this would be significant. But you can only know that it's happening if you've calculated it, because the sun's there. You can't actually see the planets. And this is a relatively rare event. It all fits. Is that really what Matthew was talking about? I don't know. It's fun to play with the idea. At one point
0: in his life, Brother Guy wondered whether the study of astronomy was really worth it. After all, why keep your eyes fixed on the sky when there are people here below starving
4: to death? Astronomy is what people think about stars and planets. It's a very human activity. To deny it to somebody because they're born on the wrong continent or whatever is to deny them their humanity. Being able to remind people that we don't live just by bread alone, but by what goes on in our mind and our souls and the curiosity and the desire, which ultimately is a desire for God.
0: The more we learn about science, the more joy we can take in the creator of the universe.
4: God is not creating a universe that's a big machine that winds up and then he walks away, like the materialists would have it. He's not a God who pulls every atom on a string that the, like the fundamentalists would have it. And he's not someone who says you have to earn my love, but rather he says, I've given you my love and how you respond is freely up to you. G.K. Chesterton had a wonderful description in Orthodoxy. The created world is like a sister. And you know he quotes St. Francis, but, but Chesterton puts it in a wonderful way, he says, Creation is more than a sister, it's like a little sister, a little dancing sister that you laugh at as well as love. You're not going to worship your little sister and you're not going to exploit your little sister. You're going to recognize how wonderful it is that we are both children of the same father.
0: For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown.
1: Robert Nicholson has been to the Holy Land so many times, he's lost count.
5: You know, I I stopped counting after, I think, 50. I don't know. It's been dozens and dozens anyway.
1: And during each visit, Robert makes a point to stop at the Basilica of the Nativity in Bethlehem.
5: It is without question one of the most sacred places in uh, Christendom. It's located, obviously, in the city of Bethlehem, which course is the birthplace of Jesus but going even further back it was the the hometown of King David.
1: The Basilica of the Nativity is a large stone structure that dates back to the sixth century. It's believed to be the oldest completed church in Christian history. On one side of the church is an opening that's about four feet tall.
5: And you'd be forgiven if you didn't realize that that's actually the entrance. It's probably you know as, as high as your chest. And you have to actually duck to get inside. They call it the door of humility, and it was built that way on purpose so that on coming into this very holy place, the birthplace of our Savior, you have to actually duck down and almost bow as you go inside.
1: The inside of the basilica is dimly lit. It's split into several chapels maintained by three different Christian rites. Beneath the church are several caves, including the cave where Saint Jerome translated the Gospels, and a cave known as the Grotto of the Nativity,
5: which marks the the traditional site of the actual birth of Baby Jesus. And there's there's a there's a star, a 14 pointed star that's on the ground, on the floor of that grotto. And as you come down as a as a pilgrim, usually what you do is you is people will bend down and and kiss the star, they'll often pray. It's quite an experience when you're there as a tourist. It's usually packed, there's lots of people, there's pilgrims from all over the world. You hear Spanish, Italian, Tagalog, English. There's a lot of mayhem, but when you're down in that grotto and it sort of all hits you that this is is the place, it can be, it is actually a phenomenal uh, spiritual experience that you, you don't soon forget.
1: Robert travels to the Holy Land often for his work with his nonprofit organization, the Philos Project. The organization aims to connect Christians in the United States with Christians in the Middle East through guided tours and on the ground projects.
5: Right now, for example, we have a project called Gaza Exodus, and we're trying to help uh, resettle and provide some financial help for a few. Palestinian Christian families who are escaping from persecution uh, in Gaza.
1: Robert hopes to help Christians in the U.S. understand what's happening to Christians in the Middle East today.
5: You know, there are a lot of conflicts, there's a lot of bloodshed, there's a lot of persecution. And to the extent that we don't know what's happening over there, there's no chance that we can help.
1: But he said traveling to the Middle East can also be a powerful spiritual experience.
5: I think as Christians living in the West, we often forget where our spiritual roots lie. We, we sort of get caught up in our own world, uh, our own churches, the things that we're doing locally, and we forget that we have this amazing historical, cultural, and spiritual connection with Jerusalem, with this part of the world where Jesus and his disciples walked, and there's, there's a lot of power in that. There's a lot of spiritual power in reconnecting to our roots.
1: The city of Bethlehem is located about six miles south of Jerusalem.
5: There's actually three villages all altogether that make up kind of greater Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem itself, Beit Sahor, and uh, Beit Jala. These are three traditional Christian towns. And around those towns are still fields and, and believe it or not, still shepherds leading uh, flocks through those fields. And actually in Beit Sahor you'll find the, the fields where tradition has it that the shepherds actually encountered uh, the angels that that night that we uh, celebrate during uh, just before christmas
1: today the city of bethlehem is within palestinian territory
5: so when you're there if you're walking up to the basilica you're you're very much in an arab environment you hear arabic you see Arab people.
1: Christians make up only about 1% of the population and many of them are concentrated in Bethlehem. For those Christians, Christmas is a year-round business.
5: There, I will say overall there's a feeling of, like a perpetual feeling of Christmas in Bethlehem. I think that you know there's obvious spiritual reasons for that. It's it's something, it's, it's what that town is associated with. There's also a number of practical reasons. The whole town, especially the Christian sector of the town, exists on tourism, and so uh, for them, it's it's important. Obviously, that Christmas <laughs> happens even in July. You'd be surprised at how much of the the Western observance of Christmas actually kind of made its way back to Bethlehem. You see a lot of the Santa Claus stuff, and Saint Nicholas obviously has a connection to uh, to Bethlehem. So there's there's a lot of that. There's a lot of even some of the the decorations you would recognize, it, it kind of gets you know, adopted from the West back into Bethlehem.
1: Despite this Western influence, Robert said there is still something very Eastern about the way Christians in Bethlehem speak and think about Christmas.
5: You know, I think if you're a a Palestinian Christian, okay, today you call yourself Palestinian, but you and your family have been Christian, you know, not for a hundred years not for even 200 years or 500 years you feel that your ancestors go all the way back to the, the first church in Jerusalem and so you may speak Arabic today but back then your ancestors spoke Hebrew or Aramaic and so there's this this very uh, personal aspect that that you feel among the people when it comes to Christmas they're not celebrating like you know we celebrate as is an important event that happened Uh, to somebody else. If you live in Beit Sahur and you're celebrating uh, Christmas and you're thinking about those shepherds who saw those angels and heard the announcement that the Messiah had come you're thinking uh, that that very well could have been my great 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 uncle and that that uh, intimacy uh, of Christmas is something that I've never experienced anywhere else. So there's a real earthiness, a real connectedness and, and a personal Character that that comes with Christmas there that I've never experienced anywhere else. Even in other parts of the Middle East, I've been in in Lebanon, I've been in Iraq uh, for Christmas, and even there, you don't you don't feel the connection the same way that you do in Bethlehem. It's it's organic. It's you could sort of touch it and feel it.
1: For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Oliveira.
2: That is it for this week's Advent episode of CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency a service of EWTN News we're produced and edited by Kate Olivera and Jonah McKeown our executive producer is Kate Olivera special thanks this week to our team in Rome especially Courtney Mares for interviewing Brother Guy and special thanks to the Father Emmanuel who actually called us back we want to finish this episode with the Benedictines of Mary singing O Come O Come Emmanuel you can find an entire segment about these talented Benedictine nuns way back in episode six of our podcast. But for now, just listen to this.